Morning, everybody. And good morning to everybody joining us online. If you're brand new with us, my name's Aaron Stern. I'm the lead pastor here and so glad that you've chosen to join us this morning. In 2018, uh, Yale University offered a class. It's the only time they've ever offered this class. And the name, the official name of the, of the class was Psychology and the Good Life. It became known as informally the happiness class. The first day that you could register for the class, 300 people signed up. Three days later, 600 people had signed up. And three days after that, 1,200 people had signed up. 25% of the student population was signed up for the class on happiness. They had to move from a smaller auditorium into the largest auditorium on campus in order to facilitate everybody who was longing to learn about and maybe find happiness. Now, this isn't just an Ivy League desire. It's actually a universal desire and maybe even a need for us to experience happiness. The world, I believe, is longing for happiness. Now, happiness can certainly have lots of different definitions, and it can be very circumstantial, good day, happy, not good day, sad. But God actually wants you and me to be happy. Now, for some of you, that's a a bit of a, a startling statement. You kind of think of God as a cosmic killjoy. Or you think, uh, the less happy I am, the more holy I am. But neither is true. And Jesus wants you and me to be happy, as indicated in the Beatitudes. We're in a series going through the Sermon on the Mount for the next several months and going through each one of the Beatitudes to start. And, And each of the Beatitudes starts with blessed. The word blessed is maybe a a kind of a a non not frequently used word in our in our world and oftentimes is is a little weak and 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 just kind of oh blessings to you. But there's a much deeper and broader and richer meaning when Jesus is seeing saying blessed. Uh, Some scholars would translate that word happy. Happy are those. Now, in our day and age, because of the ways that that's so uh, regularly not only tied to circumstances, but tied to a temporary feeling, uh, we're using the word lucky. Like somebody who has somehow uh, uh, gotten better after a bad diagnosis, they feel lucky to be alive regardless of what's going on. And so Jesus wants you and me to be happy as well. It's just that it's not going to be on your or the world's terms, it's going to be on His which is why last week, and he starts off the Beatitudes by saying, blessed are those or happy are those who are poor in spirit. And this happy is, or lucky, is a condition, a condition of the soul, a condition of the heart. And, and this idea may not be, and going on God's terms may not be any more accentuated than in the second Beatitude, which is what we're going to dive in today. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Happy are those who are sad. It seems pretty, like, mutually exclusive. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Has Jesus lost his mind? The Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount are counterintuitive and in so many ways countercultural. They're countercultural in the first century and they're countercultural in our day. In the American culture... Oftentimes, grieving is seen as a sign of weakness. How many times have you heard, big boys don't cry? Or, or maybe it's, um, 
It's when somebody cries. Maybe you've said this, and sometimes it's without even thinking. Somebody cries, and they say, oh, I'm so sorry, apologizing for their tears. Why would we say that, even if unthinking? Maybe it's because somehow it's been, it's been communicated to us in some form or another, it's not okay. I'd like to make the statement here today that crying is a, stri- a sign of strength, and real men cry. But not only is it, not, is it maybe not as acceptable in our American culture, unfortunately, oftentimes it's not acceptable in our church culture either. Because difficult or what might be seen as negative emotions are off limits. Sadness, anger, disappointment, despair, and go on down the list. Because somehow we've got to be positive, we've got to be joyful, we've got to be happy and live in victory. Or, or maybe, maybe if you grew up in church, you grew up around the idea that faith equals no suffering. But, but if you think faith promises you no pain, you will be consistently disappointed in this world. See, to deny grief is, to, is not to deny faith. To deny grief is actually to deny love. We grieve because we love. And we can see throughout all of Scripture, especially the Psalms, but from beginning to end, that grief is a part of the people of God. And we actually don't have to look any further than Jesus for permission to grieve. Isaiah chapter 53, there's a uh, in this prophecy about Jesus, the man who is, going, who is the Son of God, who's going to save the world, it says about him, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. In Jesus in the Gospels, we see him interacting with so many people and so many experiences and emotions in life. And when Lazarus dies, it says that Jesus wept. When Jesus approaches Jerusalem, it says that he wept. He is saying, blessed are those who mourn. He seems to be encouraging grief. Now, the word mourn here, blessed are those who mourn, is not like, blessed are those who get choked up. Blessed are those who get sentimental in a movie. Now, mourn here, the definition that he's using, is the strongest word for grief. Passionate grief. Or another way to define it is tears that come from the depth of your soul. When Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, it's like a, the, the word used there is that uncontrollable to the point of even like not just uncontrollable tears, but in anguish. You might find yourself, as you think about this, a bit scared of grief. You're aware of the things that are pain in your life, but you, you're afraid to go there. Maybe because you think, I'm afraid to get stuck. I mean, will it end? Will I get just live in a place of despair? Anybody ever seen the movie Inside Out? Animated movie where uh, it's kind of the headquarters, the emotional headquarters of, of this little girl who moves with her family to another city. And so she's left her close friends and she's sad over the loss of those friendships and the everydayness of their interactions. And so you see inside of her emotional headquarters, and as she's in this new place, they're trying to get rid of sadness. Like, no, 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 sadness, you stay away. And as the movie goes on and they keep trying to push sadness out, it has an effect on joy. Because to 
to, to get rid of sadness has an impact on all other emotions. See, but the reality is grief will not kill you. But suppressing grief will deaden something inside you. Create a numbing to the emotions that God has given to us. And often if we don't grieve, you know what it gets covered with? Anger. And there is not a beatitude that says, blessed are the angry. Blessed are those who mourn. Now you might need to, I think we need to ask the question, blessed are those who mourn over what? Over spilled milk? Over a Things not going you know, very well, a B instead of an A on a test. The girl didn't say yes to go out on a date. I mean, what are we supposed to be mourning over? And the way that Jesus is engaging this is that we would mourn over things not being as they should. In the very beginning of the Scripture in Genesis chapter 1, God creates a perfect world as it was designed to be. Everything in the way that it would, should be in order to flourish and thrive, humans included. But a few chapters later, sin and death are invited into the world through the rebellion of Adam and Eve, rebelling against God's way. And as a result, the perfect world is broken. Things are not as they were supposed to be, things were broken. And so, as a result, when you look through the rest of the Old Testament and throughout the Scriptures and into our own lives, we see this isn't right. We don't need to look any further than our own sin. We need to mourn over things not being as they should. And that would include mourning over our own sin. David exp- uh, expresses this really well in Psalm chapter 38. A, a good portion of the Psalms are laments, griefs. And Psalm 38 is specifically David mourning over his own sin. Now, as a follower of Jesus, there's a, there's a paradox. And the paradox is that in our grief, we can also then sense a, a feeling of gratitude because of what Jesus has done to deal with the sin of the world. Now, when we grieve over sin, it's important that we Grieve over ours. You ever heard the phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin? Actually, do you know that the Scripture doesn't teach that? The Scripture says, teaches love the sinner, hate your own sin. And when you do, and when you see it in ourselves, sometimes the reason we like to look outwards is, is because then we don't have to face what's inside. And when we see it, It breaks our heart because it makes us less human because as a result of the brokenness in our own hearts, we don't love to the fullness that God designed us to love. It impacts not only ourselves, but it impacts relationships. And so we mourn over our sin, and we also mourn over our broken world. When the sin in our own hearts expresses itself in the world, it breaks other things. And so we see as a result of rebellion and sin and death in our world, we, we mourn over things like divorce, a broken marriage, a broken covenant. Mourn over domestic abuse, 
depression, anxiety, mourn over death, sudden or way, way before somebody's time, somebody taking their own life. Mourn over the brokenness of our world expressed in human trafficking, the selling of a person, the objectification of a person. We mourn over the individual and systemic racism that still pervades our world. To mourn over the, the, a son or a daughter that has wandered away and the, maybe the lack of relationship with your own blood. To mourn over addiction, over alcohol or drugs or pornography. To, to look outside and look into the world and see places like Haiti. And to see the chaos and the corruption and the, and the poor leadership and the suffering of a people. To look around and see the church the church of Jesus that in some ways, in some places, has gone off the rails and become more about a political ideology than about following the risen Savior. The ache in each one of our hearts over the things that we see both near and far, the, the clamoring for power, the ache in our hearts to see what that can lead to in terms of even war and the weapons designed to hold on to power. With a greed that can rise up and lead to poverty in so many different places, to ache for the poor, to ache for the homeless, to ache for the things that are not right in this world because they're not. And so to mourn is to protest. To mourn is to shake your fists in some way, whether actual or internally, and say, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And do you know what? That is exactly right. It isn't the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way God created His world to be. It's not how He wanted it to be. And good news, everybody, it's not how it will always be. Because Jesus came to the world, went to the cross, and came out of the grave, communicating that sin had in fact been defeated and death had also been defeated. There was, that death was now in the grave and that Jesus will one day come back and when he comes back in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no more death and no more pain and no more sorrow. It will all be gone. And so we look forward to that day. Nicholas Volstersdorf I think I said that right. <laughs> Author and philosopher wrote a book called Lament for a Son after he lost his 25-year-old son in a climbing accident. In this book, he tells a story about how somebody was asking him about the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, talking about his own grief over the loss of his son. And they said, who are the mourners? And this is what he says. This is a bit of a longer quote, but hang with me. The mourners are those who have caught a glimpse of God's new day. They ache with all their being for that day's coming. Jesus returns. And who break out into tears when confronted with its absence. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm, there is no one blind and who ache whenever they see someone unseeing. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm, there is no one hungry and who ache whenever they see someone starving. They're the ones who realize that in God's realm there is no one falsely accused, and who ache whenever they see someone imprisoned unjustly. 
They are the ones who realize that in God's realm there is no one who suffers oppression and who ache when they see someone beat down. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm there is no one without dignity and who ache when they see someone treated with indignity. The mourners are aching visionaries. A deep ache. You ever feel that way? Have a deep ache? Do you know that you are joining with all of creation, as it says in Romans chapter 8? Romans 8 says that all of creation is groaning, longing for the redemption of all things because things aren't right. So, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, this phrase, for they will be comforted, is in the future tense. So, they will be. Because the kingdom of God is a present reality and a future hope, which is why the Apostle Paul, writing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in response to a question, saying, what about the people who have died already? And he responds with this, and he says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. See, he's saying we grieve. We grieve. We mourn and we cry. We feel the deep, deep ache. He's just saying that we grieve differently. We grieve differently because of the resurrection. Our grief is shot through with hope. It doesn't eliminate grief. It just means that there's something in our grief that has a brightness about the future. And we see what that might look like in Revelation chapter 21, second to the last chapter of the Bible and the very last book of the Bible written by John, the revelator, and he is saying this. He says in chapter 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. He's got a vision of what the end looks like. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea, S-C-A. Some of you might be like, but I like the ocean. In the first century, the sea was known or seen as a place of chaos and evil. He's saying there'll be no more chaos and no more evil in the new heaven and the new earth when Jesus returns. He talks about it a little bit more, and then he says in verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. When you think about that, does your heart ache and long for that day? He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Tim Keller, New York City pastor and author, says it this way, in the end, everything sad is going to come untrue. What a beautiful hope we have for the future. But thankfully, it is not, comfort is not reserved only for the future. The word comfort is made up of two words, with and strength. That we find strength with others. This word comforted, for they will be comforted, is a Greek word, and in the, the verb of it is parakaleo. 
The noun of that word is paraclete, which is the word for Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one who is with us and strengthens us. So we have a present comfort as well. Psalm 34, verse 18 says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. I'd like to suggest, and this is based on experience as well, if you don't mourn, you will miss an aspect of God that you will only experience if you do. In 2008, Jossie was pregnant, my wife. We were pregnant with a little girl. And in February 2008, she was born, stillborn. February 18th, just a couple of days ago, she would have been 14. And that week, instead of celebrating new life, we were putting a tiny little coffin into the ground, surrounded by friends and family, in some of the deepest, most painful grief and ache I've ever experienced. As I look back on those days, I don't love anything about it. I don't love anything about the circumstance, about death, about losing a little girl, about the pain of those days. But you know, there is a tenderness in my heart towards those days. And it's because of the nearness of God. There was a nearness in those moments that I've, I, you can only experience in those moments. It's like, it's like a strange strengthening. In the times when you're diminished, there's also a, a way that the Holy Spirit is so close in a unique way. He's close and near always, but there's a unique nearness in our grief. I like how Dane Ortland says it in the book Gentle and Lonely, Lowly. If you're in Christ, you have a friend who in your sorrow will never lob down a pep talk from heaven. He cannot bear to hold himself at a distance. Nothing can hold him back. His heart is too bound up with yours. And so Jesus is encouraging and models to us grief and mourning. The Scripture encourages us not only to mourn, but to mourn with those who mourn, as it says in Romans chapter 12. Not fix those who mourn, but mourn with those who mourn. With. I think this is an important thing for us to remember in our day and age because I think our culture teaches us, even if it's like mourning is weakness, teaches us in some ways to do it in isolation. In the first century, there is a Jewish custom called Shiva where a bereaved family sits together for a full week and is visited by the community and friends. So they're, they're hardly alone for a full week. And you might think, but man, that sounds a little tough. <laughs> but the reason was that it prevents you from retreating into yourself. And in the 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 the, the the freshness of the pain, it softened the jagged edges of grief. Today, we're, we're kind of encouraged, just keep it to yourself. 
And there are moments for ourselves in the middle of the night, in the dark moments in the valleys and nobody is around. There without a doubt is a moment. There's moments and times when we're by ourselves. But if we do it only by ourselves, we miss out on the strength, not just of the Holy Spirit, but of others. The Holy Spirit through others. As I look back to 2008, and I think about the loss of our little girl. Her name was Bergen Joy. I not only think it brought back to the pain, but I'm also reminded of the people, the amazing community and friends that God brought around us that brought strength to our hearts and to our lives. It's the reason that That it's so important to build relationships and be in a city group and find your friends, even in the brightest of days, because you'll need them in the darkest of days. And they were with us. With us. So we're going to do something here today where we can kind of lean, lean into mourning and the deep ache that we might find in our own hearts. Up here in the front is these boxes, and we've got some candles around them, but these boxes are empty, but they are holding places for candles. And the host team is going to make their way into position and where, if you'd like, during this next song that we sing, you can come down, you can grab a candle, and you can kind of place it into one of these boxes. I want you to know we're not in a rush. So you don't need to rush down thinking, I've got to do this. Take your time coming down. And you also don't have to rush back to your seat. I want to encourage you. Maybe you go back to your seat and you sit, or, but to engage it. Because, see, comfort is not found in insulating your heart. It's found in opening your heart to God and to others. And we want to do this together in a, in a collective environment so that we can mourn with those who mourn. Maybe you find yourself not in a place with a deep ache in your heart. So would you notice and think about the people around you or the people walking down to the front and would you be with them in their grief and in their mourning? So I don't know what deep ache. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. I know people in this room who have lost a mom or a dad in the last year or two or three and carry the, the ache. Maybe it's a divorce or maybe it's a sibling or a son or a daughter or maybe it's a conflict and the unreconcilable differences or, or maybe it's that you find yourself single and longing, aching to be married. Maybe it has to do with a colleague or it has to do with the loss of business or it has to do with something being wrong in this world that weighs so heavily on your heart. Whatever it might be, can we just take a moment together to mourn and lean into the reality of what Jesus says are the happy and the blessed and the lucky people of the world that we might experience the comfort of the Holy Spirit in the moment as a sign of, what, of the full comfort we will receive in the resurrection. So let's all stand up together.
And as soon as the song starts, I want to encourage you. You can feel free to make your way down to the front. And let's lean in to what Jesus encourages us to do that we might experience his full comfort.
truth is, as we sing it as well, the, the reality is it doesn't feel well. But the posture there is just surrender, like hands up to Jesus and his love and his tenderness. I love the original version of, of that song. It says this, when peace like a of Jesus it is well even when it's not well and it's okay not to be well for some of you you need more time I want to encourage you in two ways one after we dismiss feel free to linger or for others of you maybe you just need to create some space this afternoon or sometime this week just to engage it. Not insulate, not try and escape, not try and numb, but move into and experience the closeness and the comfort and the healing of the Holy Spirit. For some of you, maybe in this room, you, you're grieving, but you're like, I, I, don't, I don't know what it means to grieve with hope. We grieve with hope because of Jesus. And so maybe you find yourself here today saying, I need that. And just like Callie said, it's a, it's a posture of surrender. And I believe that the, the invitation of the Holy Spirit here today is to put your faith and your trust in Jesus. That he is who he said he is. He did what he said he was going to do and he rose from the grave that he will one day make all things right. If that's you here today, would you just, under your breath, say, God, I give you my life as a way of statement of trust. Maybe that's for the first time or it's the first time in a long time today as a way of saying, I'm coming home because I need hope. And that hope is not optimism. It is a confidence in who Jesus is and what he will do. For some of you, you, your next step might be engaging in a, in group, in a group and finding 
a people to mourn with, for you to mourn them and them to mourn with you, now or in the future. All of us together, starting last week, I encouraged all of us to memorize the Beatitudes. So this week, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, not just to know it in our heads, but as we know it, we meditate on it, we integrate it into our lives, we become more familiar with it so that maybe instead of running from grief, we lean into it, experience the fullness of God. Father, wherever each one of us find ourselves here today, God, we thank you for your nearness. We thank you for your comfort that we can have as a present reality in your Holy Spirit, but also as a future hope in your return. And so help us to lean into the words and the ways of Jesus, to experience the kingdom in its fullness, and know you in a greater and deeper way. This we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the comforting Holy Spirit. And everybody said...